Amen. Thank you, choir. You know, I, it's a hard time in our world, a hard time in our, our nation. And, and, you know, it's good to remember that we have good news, right? That the lamb has overcome. That no matter what we're going through, that, that death is not the end for those who are in Christ. That we can say, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? The lamb has overcome. Jesus told us in this world we will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. The Lamb has overcome, and that's our claim as Christians. So uh, when, when I get despairing, when I worry about the future, it's good to remember the church has good news that is indeed good news for everyone, for the whole world. It's something that, you know, Lower Broadway doesn't have. It's something that uh, major corporations, Apple, Google, they don't have what the church has, which is the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel that the lamb has indeed overcome. Let's remember that and, and remember that he will reign forever. Forever he is lifted high. It's good to remember those things. Uh, today we're gonna finish our series on uh, surprising strategies that, that God uses in our lives and, and how the Lord works in ways that we wouldn't necessarily choose for ourselves, but that the Lord continues to, to be faithful in how he uh, works out his plans according to his strategies which very rarely happen to be Nathan's strategies, unfortunately for, for me. Sometimes I think I know what's best, but, you know, in youth ministry, Evan knows about this. Um, you know, we're known for doing strange things. Uh, I was a youth pastor for 12 years and did a lot of odd things. I laugh with Evan about um, going through the checkout line at Walmart sometimes with, you know, uh, 18 pairs of pantyhose and, uh, you know, some tennis balls. And, and the people are looking at me like, what are you doing? I'm like, don't worry about it. Why do you have 24 cans of shaving cream in your cart? Just don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. Uh, but one game that we played was bigger and better. You ever done that, Evan? Bigger and better? You give like every team like a paper clip or a penny or something. And you say, you have three hours, go get something bigger and better. You have to trade up. You have to give somebody your penny and they have to give you like a dime and then you trade the dime for a quarter or something like that. You trade up for something bigger and better and we only played it once because we ended up with so much junk back at the youth center. Uh, we had a, at one point I was strapping an enormous uh, Papazon chair, you know what those chairs are? The big round wicker chair. I was strapping that to the roof of my car at some point uh, in Brentwood at 8 p.m. Um, on a Friday night, uh, someone donated one of those big projector screen TVs. You know what I'm talking about? They're just like enormous. It was probably, you know, four feet across. Uh, we had to get rid of all that junk afterwards. The winner uh, brought back a crisp $100 bill that someone had given them, which was promptly donated to the church budget after they brought it in. But uh, in our text for today, we're going to see how people like us tend to do the opposite of that game. We tend to trade down. We, we tend to settle for less. Remember Jesus said, why do you cast your pearls before swine? What he meant was we tend to trade down and settle for less. Instead of bigger and better, we simply are gonna take immediate and tangible. Whatever you have now that I can hold on to, I'll settle for that. When God has something infinitely bigger and better for us. We're gonna see what happens when people decide to, to bet their lives, to build their lives on a foundation that is not a permanent one. We're gonna see what happens when people put their trust 
in counterfeit gods, when they settle for immediate and tangible deity instead of actual deity. We're going to see what happens when they set their hope and dreams on, on things that are created instead of the creator himself. It reminds us of Romans chapter 1, verse 22 to 25. This is what we're going to see in Isaiah chapter 46 and 47 today. These exact words from Paul. Claiming to be wise, these people became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God who the choir just sang about for images resembling mortal man and birds <laughs> and animals and creeping things. Gross. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. How tragic that God turned them over to that because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Forever he is lifted high, amen. Let's remember where we are, okay, in the context of Isaiah right now. God's people are in, in dire straits. This is like the brink of extinction for God's chosen people. You know, the, the northern kingdom of Israel was wiped out in 722 BC when the Assyrians came in, but Judah was hanging on two little tribes, Judah and Benjamin, that said, we, we're still committed to the Davidic covenant. We're still going to worship in the temple. We're still going to follow the Torah to the best of our abilities. But they kept failing, of course, and God finally said, enough. And he sent the Babylonians in 589 BC, besieged the city. And finally, in 586, the city was reduced to a pile of rubble. The Babylonians came in and defiled the temple, defiled the holy of holies. And God's people were carried off as slaves in a pagan land called Babylon. But this section of Isaiah addresses the faithful remnant in Babylon who continued to seek the Lord and to follow his ways, who continued to trust in the one true sovereign God over all creation. He speaks through Isaiah to them to bring them words of comfort in a terrible situation. In chapter 46, we're going to see how the gods of the Babylonians are false. They're simply made up things that have been fashioned from the earth. And then in chapter 47, we're going to see how trusting in the immediate and tangible over true deity leads only to destruction and devastation. Babylon thought their gods were bigger and better but soon the illusory world of their counterfeit gods would come crashing down around them as counterfeit gods inevitably lead us to. So when we see the kingdom of Babylon destroyed and lying in the dust, and embarrassed and defiled, we're going to get a glimpse of what happens to all cultures who choose to put their faith in idols who are not actually bigger and better, but are simply immediate and tangible. They're cheap imitations. So I've broken these two chapters into five sections for today's. We're, we're going to see how trading up, really trading up for what is actually bigger and better. First, we're going to see that, that counterfeit God's burden and can't save. The first two verses of chapter 46 
we're going to see that they're not real. They just weigh us down. And then we're going to see in the next part in chapter 46, 3 through 9, that God does carry us and he's able to actually save us. And then we're going to see in the last part of chapter 46 that our gracious God actually wins. He accomplishes what he sets out to do. And then in chapter 47, we're going to see proud Babylon loses. And then we're going to see at the end of chapter 47, the futility and the certain doom of these earthly gods. Let's remember that throughout the Bible, Babylon is a symbol, it's representative of every prevailing cultural, every, every predominant culture of the present age. Babylon's therefore a symbol of the, the power structures that are built on the foundation of counterfeit gods. So when we see the kingdom of Babylon destroyed and, and, and lying in the dust, we're going to get a glimpse of what happens to all nations, to all cultures that choose to build on the foundation of cheap imitations. Every good thing in this life, again, is summed up in the person of Jesus Christ. Ray Ortland says, God has hidden everything delightful in Jesus and everything outside him destroys us. That's a bold statement. Do you really believe that? God has hidden everything delightful in Jesus Christ and everything outside him destroys us. That may seem extreme, but I, I think it's true. All that's life-giving and all that, that leads to flourishing is summed up in the gospel, in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the return of Jesus. Every good thing in this life and in the next life is from him and because of him and for him. So first, we're, we're going to see how these counterfeit gods, you know, just burden us. And then we're going to see, again, how they can't save us. So let's jump into chapter 46, uh, verses 1 and 2. Hear now the word of the Lord. Bell bows down. Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are born as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Okay, what's Isaiah talking about? Who are Bel and Nebo? These are the gods of the Babylonians. Bel was the patron god of Babylon. Bel is kind of another word for Baal. It really means Lord. And here it's referring to Marduk. Marduk was the creator god who not, not created the world from nothing, but killed his adversary and formed the earth from his enemy's body through violence. Bel was supposed to be the most powerful god, the king of gods. And Nebo was his oldest son. He was the god of wisdom. He was supposed to be the all-knowing, all-seeing god. So every year at the, the New Year's festival, they would bring out these massive statues of Bel and Nebo, and they would parade them through the streets of Babylon on the backs of these horses or oxen, and, and, and they would bring them all through the city, and then they'd bring them to these tables of discernment where Nebo, the, the god of wisdom, was supposed to speak to his priest, and they would predict what was going to happen for the coming year. They obviously missed this part in 539 where Cyrus and the Persian Empire would come in and 
wipe them out completely and send the Jews and the other slaves home again. And God exposes this whole New Year's ritual as a farce. He feels bad for the oxen and the horses that have to lug these big statues around Babylon. He says, these poor beasts, these weary beasts are carrying these you know, ineffective statues around. It's pointless. They're nothing more than a burden. The connection is obvious, right? God is saying, look, if, if these gods have to be carried, how can they possibly carry you? God's saying, look, if, if these gods are just a burden, then how can they take a load off of you? Idols only weigh us down. They, they keep us pinned down under their insufferable weight instead of actually freeing us to live free. But our God's different. Let's go to point number two. Point number two is that our God can actually save us. Look at uh, verses three and four. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnants of the house of Israel who've been born by me from before your birth. God's not some ox who's carrying a, a, a fake statue. God's the one who's carrying us from before our birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs, I will carry you. I'm finding more gray hairs since I've become a pastor. I've made and I will bear. I will carry and I will save. Not only has God made us, but he's the one who sustains us. He's the only reason that we're here today. If we make it home safely from church today, it's by God's grace alone. He's the one who's in charge of it all. I love what the Apostle Paul says to the Greek philosophers at the Areopagus in Acts chapter 17. Do you remember this? He quotes to them from their own famous philosophy text, but he flips it to show them that it's really about the one true God. In him we live and move and have our being, right? God is the one in whom we live. He's the one in whom we move. He's the one in whom we have our actual existence. It's all in God. Compare then the sovereign creator God to these counterfeit gods. Look at verses five to seven. We got those, Gabe? I bet we do. Verses five to seven. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he's happy to make it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. I, again, I think God has a sense of humor. I think he's mocking these people saying, how silly is this? If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. They spend all this money on their idols and it can't even do anything because it's just an empty statue. God invites us to honestly compare which is better, which is preferable. The fleeting pleasures of earthly success, of popularity, of food, of drink, of an affair, of power over others, or any of these of more comfort 
Are any of these more attractive? Are any of these more appealing to us than the gospel of Jesus Christ? What God has done for the world and for you and me through the love that he expressed in Jesus. In the end, these, these idols will only weigh us down and lead to our ruin. We all need to wrestle then with these questions honestly and ask God to change our hearts if we find anything else. And let's be honest, a lot of times we do find other things more compelling than the gospel. We find things more attractive than the gospel. Just admit that to God. And he, he, through his Holy Spirit, will do a work in you to change your mind's attention and your heart's affection. If you find yourself in worship and your heart is not delighting to sing God's praise, then, then I would encourage you to ask God honestly to change your heart. Because only when our affections are fixed on him can we become unburdened by these weighty idols. Only then can we unbend and quit our navel-gazing so that we can worship him in freedom and in joy. Okay, now part three. Our gracious God wins. Look at verses 8 through 13. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. God's calling us out. He was really gentle and saying, I've been carrying you since before you were a baby. Now he's saying, hey, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. He used to say, don't remember the former things of old. Remember that in Isaiah 43, 19? Remember not the, the things of old. Now he's telling us to remember the things of old. What's that about? We'll talk about that in a minute. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, Cyrus the conqueror, I've spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart. Me, God? You who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. That's Jesus. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. God's people are meant to be his own glory, a reflection of his goodness and greatness. He's pleading with us. He's calling us out for what we are, transgressors, you know, the NIV translates that, that word as rebels. The, the word in Hebrew carries some uh, idea of, of rebelling against the authority, that we are rebels, that we have rebelled against God. He's saying to us, look, I'm going to do what I'm going to do, with or without you. Do you want to be a part of it? Or do you want to be miserable and just wallow in the mud when I give you a chance to really live. You wanna try it your way? It's not gonna work out. He's begging us, come be a part of what I'm doing, it's so good. Quit trying to figure things out for yourself and just spinning your wheels and getting nowhere. Even though God graciously, again, calls us, uh, graciously carries us, he still calls us out. 
for what we are. He calls us stubborn of heart. He says, you who are far from righteousness. Remember, the, the gospel is that we are more broken and flawed and, and, and messed up than we ever could have possibly imagined. But at the same time, we are more loved, more known, more accepted than we ever could have dreamed or dared to hope. The gospel is both of those things. Isaiah is very concerned throughout the entire book of Isaiah with getting us to see who God is. He's the high and holy God. He's so good and gracious and loving and perfect in the beauty and splendor of his holiness. But at the same time, he's concerned with getting us to see who we really are too. We're just this dust that he has breathed life into. And we're so desperate, whether we know it or not, we are so utterly dependent on his mercy and grace. Verse nine, God wants us to know who he is by remembering the things of old that he has done. I was telling our life group this morning that in college, I wrestled a lot with doubt and, and, and kind of wondered, where is God? Is this whole thing made up? I don't know what's going on. But now that I'm approaching a, a big birthday in a couple weeks, um, <laughs> I won't say which one, uh, I, I don't doubt like I used to. Because I've proved him over and over, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him over and over. It's like Andrew Peterson says in his song, I've seen too much. He says, I've seen too many skies on fire, like the face of the Holy One. I've seen too many eyes wide open that once were so blind, all burning with the beauty of the same love the same love that opened mine, and I've seen too much. I've seen too much to deny. Our gracious God wins every time. Will you be a part of it? Or you're gonna stay on the sidelines. You're gonna miss out on the fun that's in the game because you're pouty and wanna do it your way. Next, point four, we're gonna see how Babylon and her idols are defeated. Look at chapter 47. Verse one, come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. God is comparing uh, Babylon to a spoiled little rich girl. A spoiled little you know, girl who's gotten everything she ever wanted her whole life. God's like, now it's time to get that pretty little dress and wallow in the dust. Remember that, that Babylon is a symbol for the prevailing sinful earthly culture of the present age and all the worldly stuff that seems desirable and cool and attractive to us. The Lord's gonna bring it all to an end. That's what verse three B is about. He says, I will take vengeance. I'll spare no one. God's gonna end all that. Yes, God wiped out the Babylonians with Cyrus in 539, the, the bird of prey from the east. But that's a, a one-time event. God's talking about something bigger here. And at the end of all things, Revelation, John the Revelator gets a glimpse of what happens at the end of this age. And what does he see? And what does he hear? Look at Revelation 18, verse one and two. After this, John says, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. And the earth was made bright with his glory. 
And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Babylon is no more. The prevailing sinful culture is ended. Living into God's good, life-giving, gospel-centered ways now is just a preview of a day to come when evil will be punished once and for all. All the idols are going to be forever destroyed as God's justice and judgment break a great reckoning onto all creation. That sounds scary to some of us, but we don't have to be fearful as God's people. Look at the reminder that Isaiah gives us in the very next verse, verse 4. Our Redeemer, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth is his name, is the Holy One of Israel. We don't have to fear God's judgment because the Lord of hosts, Lord Sabaoth, his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. That's the one who carries us. That's the one who redeems us, who brings us back to himself. He has forged a way to make us right again with himself, both now and forever. Therefore, we don't have to fear God's wrath against the forces of evil, against the forces of this present age that have led so many to death and destruction since Jesus took that judgment upon himself. But Babylon never saw it coming, apparently. They thought they were doing pretty good and that the good times would just, you know, last forever. <laughs> Pride goes before a fall, right? Look what God says to them in verses five through nine. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. Now, therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. God is sarcastic, I think. The great power of your enchantments. God doesn't really think they're great. It's a little sarcasm here. Keep going. He's saying that, that what all the earthly things that you put your trust in are not going to save you in that day. That Babylon was so proud. They thought they were untouchable. They thought they ruled the world. That's not a good place to be, is it? Because pride goes before a fall. Pride makes us lose all sense of our own sin, of our own brokenness, of our own need for a savior and for rescue and for salvation. That's right where the devil wants us. The fall becomes inevitable at that point. Some of you may have seen the article this week. I sent it to some of you about the new head of the chaplains at Harvard University. He was unanimously elected by the other 40 plus chaplains from other denominations and other religions. Uh, he's an atheist. 
The head chaplain at Harvard is an atheist who's written a book called Good Without God. You know, Harvard was founded as a school to accurately train pastors to rightly divide the word of God and to build up the church and the kingdom of God. Its motto, you know what Harvard's first motto was? Truth for Christ and for the church. They've reduced that to just veritas now, just truth. But now the new chief chaplain says this, quote, we don't look to a God for answers. We are each other's answers. Let me ask you this. Do any of you feel up to being the answer for me today? <laughs> Anybody feel like you're good enough to be the answer for someone else here today? For what someone really needs deep down? Can you do that? It seems like an incredibly arrogant thing to say, isn't it? We are each other's answers. I, I can solve all your problems. We can together, maybe, maybe me and two other people, can solve everything that you need. That seems like a very arrogant thing to say. Instead of that dose of just a little humility to say, I can't do it on my own. And you can't be the rescuer for me either. A lot of people get married thinking their spouse is gonna be what saves them. Those marriages don't last. They don't work because you can't be Jesus for your spouse. Only Jesus can be Jesus. And the good news is you don't have to be Jesus. I don't need you to be my answer because God's given me my answer in Jesus. And I can't be your answer either. And let me tell you, I can't do it. I'm not feeling up to it, I promise you. I'm tired, I'm weary, I'm broken. I need a savior and so do you. It takes a little humility to say I need a savior. A savior that's transcendent. You know what that word means? It means from beyond ourselves. I'm not talking about magic, okay? It's not, Jesus isn't magical. He's transcendent. He operates on a higher level than we do. He comes from a place beyond our earthly, broken world. That leads us to our final point, the fifth point, the futility and doom of earthly gods. Let's read verses 10 to 15. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Deeds done in the dark. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray. And you said in your heart, that's where all this important stuff happens, I am and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone. And ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. In that article about the atheist chaplain, it was interesting that one of the students said, when times are tough, we need religion. And we found it in atheism? No, that's not, that doesn't work. Stand fast in your enchantments. Go ahead, stay, stay strong to what you believe. <laughs> and your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps, God is so sarcastic. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you, like Nebo. Behold, they're like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver 
themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this, no fire to sit before. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about each in his own direction. There's no one to save you. Look, I look at these cars sometimes that pass our church and I wonder, are they lost? Are they searching? What are they looking to to save them? Only God can do that work. God pleads with us. Maybe he pokes fun at us a little bit and say, look how silly this is. You're just spinning your wheels. I wanna invite everyone here today to put their hope in the one true God who will never disappoint, never fade away, never let you down. You know, my family and I were watching a show recently about a dog trainer. We're about to go off the air uh, right now, but I'm gonna tell you this story here. Uh, A dog trainer who uh, was working with a guy who had a pit bull. And, and pit bulls aren't bad dogs, they have bad owners. And, and he, the, the guy had a brain tumor and he suffered from seizures. And he would fall down and have these horrible seizures. And, and this pit bull was protective of him. So when you know, ambulance people, EMT showed up at his door, they couldn't come in because the pit bull was protecting his owner. And and the most amazing thing happened, they trained this dog to be a kind of service dog. And when his owner would have a seizure, the dog would go and get help. The dog would be actually going to get help and bring someone to his owner. It took a long time, a lot of repetition to teach the dog this. But what the trainer said was the dog becomes fixated. And and you've seen this in dogs before. They, They get real still and they're tense and their ears perk up and they're just locked in, and that's right before they attack. It's a dangerous moment. And he said, we can't fix his fixation. He's going to be fixated on something, but what we have to do is redirect it. He said, if the dog's going to be fixated, why not be fixated on something amazing? I was like, that's it. Be fixated on something amazing, like getting help for his owner. So they, they, they just redirected that dog's intense focus into bringing help to his owner. Something amazing. Today, what are you fixated on? God wants to redirect your fixation onto something amazing, not something worthless, not something that leads to destruction and disappointment, but something that leads to life, something that leads to flourishing. Where do you need to redirect your fixation? Let's not settle for the immediate and the tangible. Let's trade up. Let's be fixated by something truly amazing, something life-giving and good and true and right. Let's be fixated by the high and holy God of the universe who created us, who carries us even now, and who saves us. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you show us the futility of putting our faith in in earthly created things rather than putting our faith in the creator. God, forgive us for our fixation. I I was telling our life group today, God, about being fixated on on, uh, a new vehicle and how that spent time looking and researching. And, And God, none of that stuff matters in the end. Recapture our hearts, oh God. Help us to fix our minds' attention and our hearts' affections 
firmly, squarely on you and on you alone. And may the things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. God, teach us wisdom in our hearts about following the things that actually give us life and not chasing after the car like a, a, a dumb dog that's only gonna end up in, in either disappointment or danger. <clears throat> Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for choosing our own way, for, for settling, for trading down, for, as C.S. Lewis said, resembling a child making mud pies in the slums because we have no idea what's meant by a holiday at the sea that you offer us. God, we know in our hearts that your ways are good, that your ways are best, that you are saving us. Help us to live into that more fully as we learn to worship you in freedom, as we find you more and more delightful, more compelling, more attractive than anything else that this world has to offer. God, I pray that we would believe that everything good is summed up in the gospel of Jesus. Everything else that we enjoy, it's actually good and true and right, is through Jesus. And may everything else, God, just fade away. We love you. We pray this in your high and holy name, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I want to invite you to respond in your heart to the gospel today. Maybe you've been chasing after these earthly things and, and, and you're tired. You, the, one of the verses God said to the people, you're weary. You've, you've, you've become weary. Maybe it's because you've been chasing after the things that aren't good and life-giving and true. Maybe today you need to redirect your heart. Whatever it is that you need to do during this time, whether it's you want to become a Christian for the first time and accept the free gift of salvation that God offers you by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, I'll be here to talk with you about that. If you want to come pray at the altar, we have so many needs, so many wounds, so many hurts. If you just want to come pray with me or, or somebody else or just pray at the altar, it'll be open here as well. Uh, whatever it is that you need to do during this time, don't leave this place without having dealt honestly with the Lord in your heart. Let's stand and sing our hymn of invitation.